gotta like behave a little bit. Okay. I can't do this without laughing. This is the whole. (laughs) This is the whole intro. Alrighty, folks. Welcome to another MusicCast podcast. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning or tonight, depending on when you choose to listen. I'm doing the intro without laughing because Kevin is the one being interviewed. Um, so welcome, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to have to re-record all of this. <laughs> yeah, just you talking to yourself. Yeah, I'm going to put like a little forward in and just talk about how you moderately bombed the intro so i had to fix it afterwards and talk to myself (laughs) okay anyway hi kev hi for real though can you tell us a little bit about who you are because am i freezing or are you freezing uh you're back i don't know if it was you or me but you're back great pause and restart so can you tell us a little bit about you because while we know you as the co-host of this podcast um i don't know how much people actually know about who you are as a musician and music educator so why don't you give us a little rundown um i am and have been for the last i think six years i'm getting i've been there long enough that i'm losing count but i want to say it's six years i've been a high school band director in uh Percusy, pa and I've been kind of in the area bouncing back and forth in the Philly area, different jobs, um, kind of a little bit of everything. I've done elementary general. I've done strings as much as I hate to admit it. Um, I've done band like at most levels at this point um, for the last 10 years or so. I got my undergrad in music ed from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And then I did some of my like extra study stuff, but not necessarily based in music at Gwynedd Mercy uh, in the area. So pretty much I grew up in this area too. So I left for four years and thought I'm going to move away from home. I'm going to try these new things and do all this stuff. And then I just kind of came back because I wanted to be near near family and I never really left again. Awesome. Um, Did you, yes, you did mention your current role. Great. So we are talking specifically tonight about um, leadership and your interest kind of in leadership. So can you tell us, first of all, how you got interested in um, educational leadership and specifically educating students, not acting so much as a leader, as a leader, but also educating students on how to be leaders? So I don't know, I was trying to think of this when I was prepping for this. I don't necessarily know if it was like a that was a plan that I went out and wanted to do it more came from a necessity. I will say that I, I've always, if you asked me who I was, I would always, I, and I still identify myself more as a teacher and less as a musician. I kind of like, I'm a teacher and I just use music as kind of my avenue and the venue that I teach in. And um, so I really, I try as hard as I can. And my interest comes in paying attention to what the kids need in different ways. And I think, the leadership stuff came mostly from my extracurricular groups, like my marching bands and my jazz bands and things like that, because I feel like what is fairly common, or at least what I had seen from where I was in school and when I had my own program, I feel like I was watching students that would get leadership positions, and then it was a title that they held. And because, first of all, they should work until they're a senior, and then they become this leader. And because they've been there for four years and they've, for lack of a better way of saying it, they've done their time, they get to be a leader. And because they're a leader now, they should be 
respected. And it just kind of felt like this flawed system because I felt like everyone looked at leaders and thought, no, nah, I'll do it better when it's my time. And then they would get up there and it would be their time. And then the people under them would look at them and go, well, I'll do it better when it's my time. And it was just this like vicious cycle of leadership was not really, it wasn't leadership. It was just a title. And it was, um, it seemed just kind of flawed to me. So I started thinking about the band as a more like global structure and how it works and how leadership fit in that. And I think it just started leading me down this path of cultivating leadership and community a little more directly in my band than I had initially intended to. So you talk about your students needing leadership structures in your band, but not just, not just working for a title, but once they get there, knowing what it means to be a proper leader. So do you think leadership qualities are innate in a person or can it be learned? I think that it can certain, certainly be learned. And I think that leadership qualities, it's kind of a, lo- it's, it's a loaded question and there's like a loaded answer because I think that most leadership qualities are innately in everybody. It's just a matter of what direction you're leading, right? Like if, if, so I have students in my room that are, they're good kids and they're well-intentioned kids, but because they're there for the social aspects of it, they can pull away from the focus of the group and they're leading. They're just like leading in the wrong direction and not where I want them. I think that the leadership element of it, the, the charisma that comes with it is innately there. And I think that you can practice and develop how you use it. Um, I think it's something that we, we talk about and we do a little more maybe in the music the music space than we do in school, but it's one of those things where I think we spend a lot of time in school or education talking about fostering like 21st century skills, like uh, being communicative and being collaborative with different people, but we really don't do it. We don't do it without like this underlying benefit to yourself, right? Like you work on a group project and you do what you do. Very rarely do people say, like I, I'm doing what I'm doing right now in this group project because I want to make the best presentation for my group. They do it because I want an A. And that inherently is, we might be teaching leadership qualities, but teaching it in a in a very like self-absorbed way. And that's just kind of the structure of school and how it works. And I think those leadership, it takes those qualities and identifying those qualities and saying, how do we apply it to like a larger group, like a band or something like that. And that's where you really start to develop them. So I think that we identify them in school and you can learn them in school, but I don't think we develop them in the way that maybe we should be, or they're as applicable as they should be. Okay. So for students who aren't like the big ones that come to mind, students who aren't in band and sports, where are students developing these school or these skills in school or out of school so like if they don't have someone to kind of show them these leadership not only give them the opportunity but then once they have received the opportunity show them how to properly lead where where can they get them well I think that and I don't think there's any, I, don't, I think there's very rarely structured where you can get them. I think it's more, you just identify your role models in life and then you learn how to lead or you learn your way of leading through observing those 
those people. So, I mean, off the top of your head, not to put you on the spot, like what would be two or three characteristics, like top characteristics of a leader that you would identify? Um, like definitely understanding, like the ability to communicate with whoever you're leading and having that genuine understanding, um, but also assertiveness. Um, and I know that one bothers some people, but as someone who is a leader, you need to make decisions. And one of the hardest pieces I think about being in that position or watching someone be in that position is that you can never make everyone happy, but you still need to make decisions. Otherwise nothing gets done. Um, and then I would just say like the expertise enough on what you are leading about, right. You don't want like the blind leading the blind. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot more than that, but kind of that compassion or understanding, um, the assertiveness and the expertise. Right. And so like, when you look at from a, from a formal education structure, we're not really like, we're, we're teaching those elements, like the assertiveness and things like that. There's always one that will kind of find their way to the top when you're working on group projects or things like that. But for the most part in a structure of a class of 30, 25, 30 people, that's the teacher's role. And you, if you think, you know, if you're listening to this and you are an educator, you think of, you have your handful of like five or six kids that are like your shining stars in your class. And they're the ones that are the ones that come to you after and go, can I help with anything? Or do you need this? Or what kind of things like that? Um, And we identify them as leaders in the classroom, but we don't necessarily, like how often do we, we allow them to like truly lead the class and uh, teach in those ways. So I think that people find it, they find the role models wherever they they might identify it might be in the scouts it might be in um church groups it could be from their parental units like you said from their sports teams anything like that i think that as you get older you like you might have coaches over and over again as you're doing sports and eventually you get old enough where you become the coach for someone and that's where a lot of people say you it's i think the hardest thing is when you start to try and when the rubber meets the road and you have to find like what kind of teacher or what kind of coach or leader you are you spend a lot of time emulating the reasons you became that position. And I think to go the next step and become your own person is that, is that tricky spot. And I don't know if we necessarily teach it in a like identifiable way. So I have a two part question and we'll start, we'll start here. We'll scaffold up to the, to the real question. What are some of the biggest deficits you see in student leaders? Um, so I, first of all, the, the deficits, this is the part, I think that the training of student leaders is probably the biggest deficit. And part of that is time. And I'll say that that's probably still my biggest deficit or my struggle spot where I find it. So when you really think about, and let's use, I, marching men's probably my most accessible example. So we'll use that as the example. I can, I can identify who my student leaders would be and where they'd become. And they're the ones that are your, your strong players, your strong marchers, the ones that are charismatic, the ones that want to work better. But as you, as you give them this role, it's a whole different ballgame to expect them to not only maintain those expectations that you have for them, but invite those expectations in their peers like peers is the the scariest word of that and i think that the biggest deficit i see is not allowing not giving them the proper training to work with students their age like i think that 
they're, and again, like we said, like they watch their teachers. And when I give them leadership positions, I think their default is, well, we listen and respect our teachers and I'm a leader now. So my way to do this is to demand respect in the same way that my teachers do, but they're not, they're not the, their peers, teachers, they're their peers. And that's, it's a different strategy, it's a different way that you go. And I think that that's, that's one of the hardest things for them to lock into. Um, okay. So going off of that, have you seen any deficits from adults who might be acting as examples of leadership, but perhaps they're exhibiting more toxic traits that, um, it's almost like, like myth busting, like kids pick them up all the time, but they're not necessarily the way to be a leader. So I think that, I think that, I think this is kind of where you're heading with this, but I think that the teachers, you know, there's the whole like sage on the stage and guide on the side. I think the ones that are most often those sages and they're the directors that stand on the podium and they command everything and they, they move all the pieces and it works really well. And that makes perfect sense why you would do that when you're in front of like a hundred people. But if you are teaching in that way, it doesn't necessarily allow for the most comfortable student leadership because that doesn't prepare them for what they, they need. So I think that one of the things that is really hard to do, but is a benefit to do is as often as you can, I like taking my hands off the wheel and letting them control it. And one of the things I keep telling the kids as constantly as I can, and I think this year is probably the year that I felt the most success with this is I constantly tell them in classes and extracurriculars, I said, you will get out of this, what you put into it, because the it's a losing battle for teachers or directors to dictate success based on what they can pull out of their students because they're only going to do that so much for you and then in turn they're not going to listen to the students in the same way but if you build this sense of like universality or community and this team building or family orientation you're always working towards this common goal and then it doesn't become um it doesn't become like, this is the person I have to listen to because they have this title. It's a, this is a common goal and a common interest. And we've decided as a group that this one person is a role model to push towards. And that's kind of what moves it forward. But I think that's, that's almost a lot of work that happens outside of the, the leadership space. I think that's more of a community, like family building thing that it is just strictly leadership. So then the ultimate question really is what are some things you have done um, personally to set an example, but also perhaps activities or um, creating, like I think of the manifesto, which sounds scary, but it's not like the manifesto we created at one point, or um, like you have your little marching band. Um, what is it? Say it again. The mission statement. The mission statement. Thank you. Um, like give us some examples of successful things you have done to create like that community family feel, but while also showing students how to be good leaders. So the, the mission statement was probably the first, and I will say like, so I've been where I am for six years. And I think the mission statement I started first year, I kind of kept everything status quo. I think we started the mission statement my second year while I was there. And I, I can honestly say that I think this is the first year that I feel like it has finally come to fruition, which makes sense because it's been, I have ninth through 12th at my school. So it's like finally gone a full cycle and things like that. 
But so the mission statement, what it was is I, I struggled a lot at the beginning because I felt like what my kids were lacking the most was intrinsic motivation or like this, this acknowledgement that they had to work for what they wanted. Um, I had, I had students that were very okay with being complacent, not getting acknowledged for their work, whether it be in scores or anything like that. And then they would go, nah, well, we're Penridge. This is what we get. And it had this, like, what are we working for? And I don't understand what we're doing. So I took uh, my upperclassmen and my student leaders one year, and I sat down in the band room and I asked them what it meant to be a marching ram. And I made sure to say, no, I didn't want it to be, what would you like the marching rams to be? It was, what does it mean to be one? And everything that you got was very communal. It was, we want to work hard. We want to be very disciplined in how we work. We want to work together and do these things. And we just like filled this whiteboard of all these different things. And from that, we kind of wrote this like mantra and this, this mission statement. And what it has become is it's how we dismiss every day is the students get called to attention. They recite the mission statement and then they dismiss from there. And the first few years I could see they're like, this is goofy. This is like a weird cultish vibe thing. We're just like chanting this thing on a field and it's no big deal. Um, but what has started to happen is now that it is like it's part of their identity when they talk about acting or working with respect and maintaining discipline and working together, being the best that they can possibly be. Now, when they're not showing those ideals, I can say, you say it every day, you need to mean it when you say it, or you're not acting in a way that is representative of your mission statement. And they're starting to incorporate this as their identity. And it's, it's becoming this, like this unified vision. So now what happens is when I have leaders, I'm most often looking for leaders that most exemplify that mission statement. I'm not looking for someone that can stand in front and run my rehearsal for me for 45 minutes, because quite honestly, that's why we have adult staff. And that's why we have those things. I need the people that are the models of our mission statement. And um, what I've noticed is I feel like my student leaders, the expectation of them being a teacher is less on them. So they're being better leaders because they're meeting the students where the students need them. And the students respect their leaders more because they're not trying to dictate terms to them. They're strictly just trying to be a part of that like family communal area. So I have kind of like two questions that relate to this. I'm trying to pick which one to go to next. So I'll go to this one. You're talking about this in a context which is competitive. And I would like to stay in that mindset for a second and I'm going to draw a connection to one of I'll say our favorite things I feel like I I've reached a level where I can say it is also one of my favorite things um you love Ted Lasso (laughs) and I know that um first of all if anyone hasn't seen Ted Lasso you just email me I'll give you my Apple plus I'm kidding Apple don't come for me but like for real I really think it should be a requirement for humanity for everyone to watch Ted Lasso Um, anyway, you love Ted Lasso and I know you've grappled with this idea that Ted has this very specific leadership style and one that is admirable, but he's a soccer coach that doesn't always win the game. So kind of how does that fit into 
um, what you were just talking about and um, you know, emphasizing community and all of those other aspects that builds leadership. Um, and is there a happy, like, can you have good leadership without results, I guess, is the question. So my, the major question there would be, what do you, what do you identify and consider as results? And this was one of the things that, so we've talked about this in context with um, Ted Lasso most recently, and we can get there. But I think the most important thing for me is I, I love like I'll, when I'm working during prep and I'm typing a bunch of things, I will, I'll listen to like speeches that people have given, or I will just kind of run through clips of like audiobooks and things like that, that are leadership building. And there's a lot of really good ones in the sports vein, just because that makes most sense. And one of the first ones that after I had my first year and I felt like there was something like fundamentally not clicking with my group and I wasn't liking the way it was going. I just kind of like picked up a bunch of books. And the one I found that stuck with me the most is called, it's uh, it's called you win in the locker room first. And it's by Mike Smith. And he does it with this guy named John Gordon, who is um, John is like kind of this guru that like identifies a lot of people in the sports world and kind of helps team write books with them. But Mike Smith was a coach for, I want to say the Atlanta Falcons. And one of the things that I found first from his book that has stuck with me the entire time is he said, it's commonplace that everyone's goal in the NFL is to win the Super Bowl. And he said, but that's a ridiculous expectation. That's not a goal that you should set. And this is where it comes into play with the competitiveness. Like if my goal, if my number one goal that I write here on the board every single year is let's win championships, that's in practice, that's kind of absurd because this is where we're going to prove that we don't know anything about football. There's 32, 36 teams, something like that in the NFL. I don't know. I know. I don't either. It's <laughs> one out of that number achieve that goal, which means 31 of them of the 32, hypothetically. We'll There's 32. Say, I just Googled it. If that was everyone's goal, that means 31 of the 32 teams fail every year. So what Mike Smith talked about is setting measurable goals. So he might look and say, last year, our, um, our third down conversion was not as strong as it should have been. So we're going to work on converting three third downs in this next game. And like, as you check things up, you move up. So to me, one of the things that we discuss a lot is our goal was we wanted to make these like stronger warm-up routines. We wanted to develop our, from a marching band standpoint, like our visual choreography book more. We wanted to be able to talk about things like plies and releves and tendus and all these ballet terms and use them to make our visual book better. And what happens inevitably, and it's, it's hard to get the kids to buy in at first because you're working on all these little fundamental things and they don't feel like you're pushing hard. But as you polish the bottom end of things, the top eventually builds and builds and builds. Now, to your point about the, the, the Ted Lasso conversation. So we had, you and I had this conversation because we had a particularly rough week in marching band this year. And I felt like, I felt like, everything about this year I loved and the positivity was flowing and everything was just working and clicking really well. And I was hitting this wall and we couldn't finish the show. And it just seemed like the kids weren't really working hard enough. And I wanted nothing more than to just snap because I felt like I knew 
I knew like the nuclear option would get me what I wanted right there. If I just started screaming at you and said, get in your spot, do your thing, be quiet, shut up, do it. It would have worked. It would have been fine. But I wasn't trying to build like a championship band. I was trying to make them feel investment and feel ownership in what they were doing. And I texted you after a rehearsal where it just felt like I was hitting my head against the wall. And I said, do I have to give up product if I want positivity? And you said, there's, there's a chance that you will. Yes. And I think that in retrospect, what I've learned is positivity is that's a, that's the long game. So in the short game, like yelling or like doing it for them, like yelling and saying, get to your spot, be quiet, do all these things gets me this like immediate, I fixed it right now. But if I want them to build something that can sustain itself, whether I'm there or not, I have to accept that maybe I, I build a little more gradually inclined and less like I shoot up and then plateau at the top. And that patience is probably one of the things that, to be honest, was the hardest for me, some of my upperclassmen, and then some of my staff as well, because they felt like we were dragging their feet. But what we were building was this intrinsic motivation and this like earning it on their own. And I think one of the other things that we discussed, and it might have been when I was editing your paper, um, was the idea that, um, and maybe it only makes sense like to you and me because we know each other, but the idea that you're not necessarily um, not getting a product, you're just getting a different product. And it kind of depends where your philosophy as a teacher lies and what, where you place value in your program. So I think using those words to describe the process is important because I think there's this big like binary between process and product. And, you know, there's this debate about which one we should focus on more and, you know, administration and community pushes up for product, but really the process is more important and this and that. And really at the end of the day, there's always going to be some product, whether you want it to be there or not. It's just, what do you want the product to be? And one of the things I think I love about your philosophy and your style of leadership and leadership teaching is that like you said, you're, you're building in stages. So the product this year is going to look different than the product next year. So that hopefully ultimately in the future, you have a much bigger, grander, but sturdier product and one that will withstand the test of time. Well, and I think the other thing too, is if you asked me what my product was, like, I think the easy answer is the product is the field show that you put on and it's how clean it was and what it sounded like. But really the product what I'm doing is my students. And that's, that's like a pretty large factor in my mind. And I do think there's like, it's, it's natural right now. I think that I agree with you. I think the world would be better, be a better place if everyone watched Ted Lasso. But now (laughs) what I'm watching is, I don't know if you've noticed, but now the fun new conversation online is everyone supplants Ted Lasso with this conversation of toxic positivity. Yeah. And that's a whole nother story as to whether or not it's in Ted Lasso, a whole different thing. But I think my thing is, I agree with you that like, if you just, if you are assessing music, uh, musical cleanliness as the product, I might be able to get 
like a nine out of 10, if I yell and scream and I control it and do it for them, and I might get a seven out of 10 if I let them do it. But that doesn't mean when I finish, I'm like, but guys, like we're all, I call it the waffle rule because it's, we're all friends, friends love each other. Um, like <laughs> you're welcome. Like, oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I don't do that. I'm not like, yeah, but like we're a family. So we got a seven out of 10 family. Like, well, you got a seven out of 10 because like when we had these moments, we had to choose between doing this and this and being like, I want them to number one, be proud of the product they put on, but number two, acknowledge where their product could have been more because if in my mind, and this is one of the flaws in how we do it in a lot of other situations educationally is I can get to the, I can get to the end goal if I do it for them faster, whether that be through yelling or those things. But if I do it for them, they don't learn how to do it. And realistically, my program might have better scores and better results and things like that if I did it for them. But at the end of the day, am I trying to have a consistently first, second place band, or am I trying to develop children to move on to the next space of their life, whatever it might be, whether it be leadership in my band or college or their like professional lives or anything like that. Um, I had, I've told you the story or you've heard it a million times, but I had a year where my jazz band was like really cruising. They were doing really, really well. They were missing that last little gear and they got to like, I don't know, for lack of a better way of saying it, there was like six divisions and we were in the second of them. And I made a point of saying, we're going to do our thing. We're going to compete. And then I want you all to watch the first division. So we watched them and they were incredible. And I, we were all sitting together as a band. And I said, so what's, and I wanted them to realize like, they're all just high school kids too. Like they can get there and they can do it. And I asked the kids, so what's the difference between them and how they're performing and how we're performing? Like, what can we do to get there? And I had a student and she didn't mean it negatively. She didn't mean it in an angry way. She was being very honest. And I appreciate it for that. She said, I love doing band, but I am not scared enough of you to try harder. And that's still like, that was probably four or five years ago at this point. And that still hasn't left me because mm -hmm. to me, why does fear of repercussion from me have to be your, your motivating factor? And I tried it for a year. Like I asked the kids, I said, do you, is this what you want? Do you want to be highly competitive and you want to do these things? And they all resoundingly said, yes. And I spent the entire year from marching band to end of jazz, never complimenting them. And um, I would watch and I'd go like, oh, that looked really good. And I went too bad. You can't tell them find the three things that are wrong. And they would finish a run through and I would go, Marissa, you messed this up. You messed this up. You messed this up. Run back, do it again. And like, that was all I would give them. And what a wild social experiment. Wow. It was well, and see what was funny is I'll never forget. They went to their first away game and they hands down put on probably the strongest, like first football game performance because football crowds are weird. Cause there's like, there's other noise and it just takes them out of it. It was the strongest performance or like first performance I've ever seen in like the six years I had been there. Mm -hmm. As the kids marched off the field, I just heard them going, I messed this part up. I messed this part up. And in my mind, I thought, good, they're here with me now too. They get it. And I finished the year and I hated myself and I hated everything about it. Cause I literally would sit in my office before band and go get mad, get cranky and like go out and be ready to like yell and get frustrated. And they had probably their strongest season up until that point, but it's not sustainable because number one, I'm going to like go insane. And number <laughs> two, 
um, eventually, if you yell all the time, it just becomes them acknowledging that that's how you're talking to them and they become numb to it. Um, so I had to try and like move the opposite direction really lean into the mission statement and go those routes. And that's when we started to do more of the, the mission statement stuff. And I talked to them all the time about Ted Lasso and what I like about Ted Lasso. And it started to become like their mantra of like, they're doing it together. And that was inevitably it became they're working hard and they're holding each other accountable. And I'm the one that's just kind of like helping keep them like this. And it's such a better way to do it because I don't have to be the top pulling them there. They're doing it on their own. And the one, like the one quote, I I'm terrible at the, and you know this, cause you've read different things I've written. This is why I'm awful at writing things. I never remember where I see quotes ever, but the one that I heard that I really liked was um, a flaw in leadership is people people get to the top of the mountain and they like talk about the top of the mountain, like everyone's been there, but they're the only ones that are there and their job is to go down and lead everyone else to the mountain. Um, they say, someone also said like a version of that is my job is not to pull you up the mountain. My job is to be like the shoulders you stand on to help you get up there. And that level of inversion is now this like nice thing where I don't have to be the one dragging them along to do the next run through and get it better. It's, they're doing it and I'm just making sure no one falls down the bottom. Yeah. That's interesting. Like on so many levels, like from a motivational standpoint, from kind of just like a learning process standpoint of like acting as a guide instead of, um, you know, like someone who just stands and gives commands or direct instruction. And it also makes me think a lot of, um, like if we really wanted to go this route, like constructivism versus behaviorism and like some of those things that we learn about, like in, I don't know, second year of education, undergrad or whatever. And then we kind of forget about, but they all kind of circle back in our everyday actions. And um, there's just, yeah, a lot built into that, that story and your experience. Um, you hear so many stories about kids quitting band because of the angry band director, or frankly, any director, orchestra director, choir director, they yell, they throw things, they do this. And um, it, it turns music, which is supposed to be an enjoyable experience into a miserable one. And why, why do you think this cycle is perpetuating? I think that, I don't think it's something we verbalize, but there's this weird uh, understanding that art, like it's like the art is suffering kind of thing where it's like, like practice needs to be like, I spent four hours in there playing these eight 16th notes and cleaning this thing. And like, I have calluses on my finger and like blisters on my, my lips from my read and all this stuff, but I can do this and do these things. And it's like a badge um, of honor. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's, it's how much can I, how much can I run this and how much can I hash this through and how clean can I make this and how perfect and you're chasing perfection. And it's, it loses sight of the communal aspect of it. And I know why teachers do it. Like, I don't get me wrong. There's, I, I tell my students this all the time before I wanted to be a music teacher, I wanted to be a math teacher. And the reason I wanted to be a math teacher was because I, I loved the neat and clean. There's one answer. And then for some unknown reason, I decided instead I'm going to give like a hundred people sticks that make noise 
and put them all in a room together. And it's absurd. So like, it makes sense to me to be that, that director. That's like, sit down, be quiet. Don't do this, play this. If I'm, you're not playing, be quiet and do this because it's terrifying to have that many kids in front of you and not have control of the room. But like, again, like kids aren't, and I, I hate saying kids these days because it makes me feel old, but like students aren't built to just be these machines that just put out musical product and practice when you tell them to, like, if you want them to emote and you want them to do these things, you have to get away from that. You have to get away from that uh, design that they're only doing what you're asking them to do because you're yelling at them because you're angry and you have to make them want it. And I think that that is really hard to do for some directors. And again, like the biggest thing I could say is be honest with them. Like, I don't, I don't, obviously I keep them on task and I don't let the, I don't let everyone just run wild and do whatever they want. But as we go, I don't sit there and I tell the kids a story all the time. I had a, a director in high school that went down the line and he said, play this one part. And if you couldn't, he said, Nope, go out in the hall and come back when you can do it. And he like just started wantonly kicking people out of the room. And I loved the music I played in that, but I hated that musical experience because that's just not how my brain operates. Um, I would much rather have them do the best they can. And then as we go to play it and they go, I don't really feel ready for the concert. And I said, because you have practiced more. And they say, yeah. And I go, well, there's your answer. And, and they, it feels blunt and it feels unfair, but I'm like, look, I'm paid to like teach you it, not to teach you to do it perfectly. Like I've done my job. I've fulfilled my part you at some point have to step in here and, and try, like, it's not my job to play the clarinet for you. It's your job to take that part of it. And I have to help put all this together. And that's where I think you avoid the toxic positivity thing is you have to put ownership on the kids, but not in a, a negative, like you're throwing things and you're yelling and screaming way. You have to say, I'm okay with whatever you perform as long as you're okay. But if you want more, I'll help you get more. Um, I don't know why it's become such a stereotype of the angry yelling conductor and composer. I do think some of it's the old way of this, like that just art form of doing that. But I think that we're shifting into making music a more positive experience for students. And I think that we have to let it be that. And sometimes that means sacrificing control and sacrificing elitism for giving them ownership of it. Yeah. I don't know if you can feel, but there's like heart emojis like bursting out of my head because I love everything you just said. Um, uh, I was going to say, though, that when you highlight this experience of maybe being a little uncomfortable with the final product on the students end and you point out, well, what could you have done more of? Like that's a valuable learning experience for the students as well. And it's kind of this idea that loops back to what you initially said of like, if you do it for them, or if you never let them experience failure, they can't react to figure out how to, to do better in the future because they haven't experienced what that's like. And so I think for a lot of, um, music educators, we obviously were very um, good at our instruments. We had to get into college 
right? There's all kinds of like gatekeeping to get you through the door to begin with. And then once you were there, you were fighting for chair placements and solos and right, you were trying to prove who you are as a musician. And so when we cycle back to the public schools, we bring that with us a lot of the time. So um, I think it makes sense that we see it. I think it's unfortunate. And like you stated, I think there's also a shift, but um, I do think again, looping it back to something you said at first is we're teachers. We're not like, we weren't hired to direct the New York Philharmonic and win Grammys. And hopefully you get to that stage, but you also have to think about the other things that you're educating students on throughout the process. So, um, and I'll say like, I know that I feel, I feel like, you know, when we go to the counties of the district things and I sit in a room with a bunch of band directors, I feel like the odd man out because when there's this conversation of like, well, how many kids did you bring to districts or how many did you do this? My number's not as high as everyone else's. And I feel like, I feel like the, the implication is I should be embarrassed by that. But like, I look at the way my students approach making music and how the enjoyment they get out of making music. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Like I, I'm teaching them what I want. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with people that have that teaching philosophy of making that the cleaner thing. I think I just, um, I acknowledge very quickly that not everyone in my band is going to become a professional musician. So I don't feel like I should or need to teach them to like practice with that caliber of like that, like just like destructive, practice habits of a professional musician I just need to make them appreciate it and know that if they put more effort in they can get more out of it and I think that's the most important part like don't don't avoid that part and I'm very honest with the kids too like if there's something I could have done I've I've said many times I've said it either after concerts or I've said it um I've said it just midweek at certain point I'm like hey I, I totally like, we tried to do this warm up thing. I was trying to make you do this and get this ready for this piece. I totally blew it. Like it just didn't work that way. Let's just try this a different way because I think acknowledgement of, and again, this is the letting loose control, like me not being the one on the podium the entire time and me saying, I mess up just as much, if not more as all of you, it's all going to be fine. Let's just figure it out is, is huge to them. I think that if you, if you try and put up this facade of like everything I'm doing is right, it won't work in that way. Well, I think in a lot of ways, what you just stated too, and this might be a little strong, especially if someone's listening to this coming from maybe a point of view that things do have to be perfect or they're coming from this very product-based mindset. I would argue that assuming all of your students are going to be um, interested in music beyond high school. Um, and whatever you just said, which I completely lost my train of thought while I was getting there. Um, it's fine is malpractice. (laughs) So I know like that, that word in itself is pretty heavy, but I think if you go into your classroom with those assumptions, oh, or like, or putting up this facade of perfectionism in an art form, there is no such thing as perfection in art like you can follow the directions on the page to the best of like your capabilities I guess but at the end of the day I mean so much is also open to interpretation and um you know it's just a very interesting mindset I think we've adopted in the music education world and you do a very good job of highlighting that 
Um, we are running out of time, which is no surprise. Yes. Can you, can you uh, mention some resources that folks can turn to if they're interested in more information on leadership or teaching philosophy or just any of the ideas that we've kind of touched on? Um, so my, my big ones are a lot of the John Gordon books that I do. One of the things that I like about the John Gordon one, so off the top of my head, just title wise, the You Win in the Locker Room First, the one he uh, wrote with Mike Smith, uh, The Coffee Bean. And Coffee Bean, I think he wrote with uh, a man by the name of Damon West. And then one called The Energy Bus are like my go-tos. And one of the things I've started to do just as like a quick side is he started to release kid versions of some of these. So like there's the energy bus for kids or uh, there's one called the hard hat and it's the hard hat for kids. And it's told as like a picture book and it has all the same ideas, but it's geared more towards children. But what I've started doing is I've started buying these copies of it because it's one thing if I like have a student leader that either is looking for more or could use that little bump in the right direction. If I hand them like a 200 page book, they're not going to read it. But if I hand them like a 26 page illustrated children's book that has the same message in it, I can get them to read it. Um, so those are like a lot of my go-to ones and it's about team building and it's, they're sports oriented in a lot of ways, but it's, it's applicable and you can pull the ideas out. Those are kind of been my go-tos as we do it. And Ted Lasso, of course. Amazing. Which everyone exactly. should watch. <laughs> um, okay. Well, yeah, I'll throw some links to that up on the website and maybe we can also get your um, mission statement and maybe a copy of the manifesto or something as well to put up there. But, um, do you have anything coming up that folks should look forward to? I am off for the, we did the math and we figured out we did our concert the first week of December. And we realized this is absurd to me, but we realized that from the third week of August, which was the first football game until the first week of December, there was not seven days that went by without us doing some public performance. Um, so I'm doing nothing till the end of February and we're thrilled for it. So uh, I'm sure if you wanted, you could search any of the, our, our high schools like marching shows and stuff like that. And you could see what they did over the course of this year, but there won't be a lot coming out there for a little while because the, the students and I need a little shut off time to prep everything for jazz and indoor drumline and indoor guard and all that good stuff. Of course, if you want to reach Kevin, you can always email the MusicCast account, musiccast at flatbooks.com or musiccast20 at gmail.com or um, what's your school email? kfair at penners.org? Yep, and it's F-E-H-E-R is my last name. Amazing. Well, I appreciate you doing this by my request. I am a fan of Kevin's leadership style. I've learned a lot from him. So thank you for taking another hour out of your life to, to do this. And I hope it's useful. Yep. And hopefully me rambling had some facts in it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>